that you would call the likes of us not only to know you, Father, but to serve you. I thank you for this gathering, Father. I thank you for each man and woman who has stepped into this room tonight to sit at your feet and to hear your word. I pray, Father, that you would speak to each man and woman here tonight. You would teach that your spirit would open ears and eyes, that the text would be revealed to us in new ways. And, Father, I pray that you would achieve these things through the weakness of the man who stands before them, Father. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. And if it sounds as if I'm mispronouncing any of the names in this genealogy, just understand that I'm right and you're wrong. (laughs) Only I wish that were true. Okay, let's go. Matthew 1, 1. The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Sarah of Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Amnibadad, Amnibadad was the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David the king. David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam the father of Abijah. Abijah the father of Asa. Asa was the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat the father of Joram. And Joram the father of Uzziah. Uzziah was the father of Jotham. Jotham the father of Ahaz. And Ahaz the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Ammon, and Ammon the father of Josiah. Josiah became the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah became the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the father of Abihud, Abihud the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor was the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Eliud. Eliud was the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Mathan. Mathan, the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. So, all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. Beginning a study of any of the four Gospels in our Bible, it always requires some preliminary observations. So that's what we're going to spend a little bit of our time tonight doing. And during the three plus years that Jesus ministered on earth, there were tens of thousands of people who witnessed his miracles and heard his teachings. So theoretically, you and I could have many accounts of Jesus having been written by those eyewitnesses. But only the Holy Spirit can inspire or lead someone to author scripture. Peter tells us this plainly in his letter, 2 Peter 1.20. He says, know this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever written by an act of human will, but by men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So what you have in your Bible, you have because God moved someone to write it. And in God's providence, only four men were moved by the Spirit to author an account of Jesus' life on earth. And those four accounts are the first four books in our New Testament. 
Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, not to be confused with John, Paul, George, and Ringo. And if you don't get that joke, it means you're under the age of 50. So the first three of these Gospels in our Bible, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are structured very similarly, and you probably know this if you've read them at all. They all report the events of Jesus' life on earth, all ending with his death and resurrection. And so naturally, these three Gospels are going to talk about similar things, describing similar events, as you would expect. And they're often called the synoptic Gospels. The first three have that title because they are so similar in their perspective. The word synoptic in Greek, it just means to see together. And the Gospels, in the case of the first three, are called synoptic because those authors all shared a very similar view of Jesus' life. But what's really interesting is that two of those three authors were not disciples of Jesus. They never knew him while he walked the earth. Matthew was one of the twelve apostles, yes. But Luke and Mark, they became Christians only after Jesus ascended into heaven. You would ask then, how can Luke and Mark have seen the same things that Matthew did see? Well, the answer is that they're reporting things through the eyes of others. Specifically, Mark was a traveling companion of the Apostle Peter, while Peter did his missionary work. And Luke was the companion of the Apostle Paul. So what Mark wrote in his gospel is what Peter related to him from Peter's own experiences with Jesus, accompanying Jesus before Jesus' death and resurrection. And then what Luke wrote in his gospel, he received from Paul, and what Paul received he gained from the encounters that he had with Jesus after Jesus' resurrection. So the first three gospels are similar, because they record the experiences of three men, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, who were all eyewitnesses or influenced by eyewitnesses to the events of Jesus' life. But having said that, these three are not identical. It wouldn't take you very long if you read through them to detect the differences. And that has caused some people to question their trustworthiness. For example, only Matthew and Luke's Gospels have genealogies, like the one we just opened with tonight. But when you look at those two pieces, the genealogies of Matthew and Luke, they're different. And you would hardly expect genealogies to be different, would you? And there are other differences across the first three Gospels. And all of these differences would cause someone to wonder, perhaps, can you really trust these accounts if they have these kinds of differences? And in particular, for our study tonight, we should ask, why are those genealogies different? Well, before I address the question of the genealogies, let's just consider that general question of, why are there differences at all? And what does that say about the Gospels? Well, I want you to imagine something for a moment. I want you to imagine that the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, I want you to imagine they were identical. I want you to imagine that they were literally, word for word, the same. You could read one, you've read all three. Would there be any value in that? Would there be any value in having the first three books of the New Testament be identical works? And for that matter, why would God want to inspire such repetition in the early parts of the New Testament? And in fact, wouldn't that perfection, that similarity, wouldn't it cause you to be suspicious? A little bit? I mean, wouldn't you assume that one author is just copying the other guys? Or if the books were exactly the same, wouldn't you feel a little less certain about their inspiration and not more confident about their inspiration? I think that's exactly what the Lord is doing in these three Gospels. He intentionally allows each man's personality and their memory differences and their perspective differences to play a part in the formation of the story of the gospel, yet without making mistakes or yet without having contradictions. And in doing so, you actually gain greater confidence in the accuracy of what you have before you. Because I want you to imagine another scenario for a moment. What if you were a detective and you came upon some crime scene, you're investigating the crime, you have four witnesses to the crime, 
and you interview all four witnesses. I want you to imagine each one tells you exactly the same story word for word. No differences. Well, would you find that reassuring? Or would you find that cause for suspicion? Right? If their stories were identical, wouldn't you assume they prearranged their testimonies and that they're hiding something as a result? That's why they went to the effort to prearrange. We know this, right? We've watched the cop shows. Anytime they have the same story, something's wrong. Right? It's actually evidence of a conspiracy. And in fact, in true police work, detective work, if two witnesses have identical testimonies, they think of it immediately as a conspiracy. Because it's not natural. Instead, what you expect is that each person's perspective is going to vary at least slightly, and they're going to have different memories, they're going to have seen different things, they're going to recall different things. One person might recall one thing, another person recall another. But in the end, what the detective gains by having four witnesses is they assimilate what they hear from all four, put them together, and you actually end up with a better understanding of what happened than you would have if you'd only had one witness to the whole scene. Having multiple perspectives gives you a better understanding. And the differences will serve to fill gaps that were present in somebody else's testimony. That's how you have to see the four Gospels that open our Bible, not just the first three. That's exactly why the Lord gave us four perspectives on Jesus' life and on his words. Because having those different perspectives adds authenticity to the accounts, and it gains us the benefit of more information, of filling in those gaps. Plus, it allowed the Lord to tailor each author's presentation to fit the needs of a particular audience. Each gospel author, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all wrote essentially on the events of Jesus' life, but they all did it from a very unique perspective. Many have noted that Mark wrote primarily to the Romans of his day, and that Luke wrote primarily to a wide Gentile audience, while Matthew wrote to the Jews who were dispersed throughout the Roman Empire in his day. And then you have John's Gospel. It's very different from the other three because John wrote his much later, decades later than the first three. And he did it from a hindsight that understood there were some things the other guys forgot. And so his Gospel has a lot of things the other ones don't have for that reason. So when you find, when we go into this study of Matthew and we find something in Matthew that's different from what you might find about that same scene elsewhere in the other three Gospels, what are we going to do? Well, we're going to do what the detective would have done. We're going to accept the reality that one of these authors noticed or remembered things that the other guys overlooked, and we're going to assimilate what we're learning across these Gospels. And if we do that and we come to a point where it seems as though one is directly contradicting the other so that they can't both be true, then what are we going to do? Well, we're going to work from the assumption that both accounts are true, and we're going to seek to reconcile them. And you know what happens when you do that? That is, when you hold the authenticity and the authority of Scripture high, when you have a high view of Scripture, you stop worrying about explaining it away, God shows you how to reconcile them. God shows you the things He won't show those who are too proud to seek Him, who are not ready to concede to the truth of His Word before they know the answer. We're going to do that in here. We're going to understand it knowing it's true. And we can do this safely, friends, because we know this word is inspired by God, as Peter said. The same God who spoke this universe into existence spoke these words too. He just used a man to record them for us. The same God who designed the forces of nature and gave life to everything and made the sun rise every morning for our benefit, he has shared his thoughts with you and I in this book. That's how much respect we ought to give to it. That's how much respect we will give to it. There is no misplaced word in this book. There is nothing approximate. Nothing is in error. Everything is in harmony. 
I hope that's your attitude about the Word of God. Perhaps I'm preaching to a, a large choir on this point. After all, we are verse-by-verse verse fellowship. But I don't know all of you, and I don't know who may be here tonight for the first time and be introduced to Bible study for the first time. I want you to understand that's the perspective that we come to this work with, an appreciation for who wrote it. So, friends, if we can't make sense of something here, it's not because the Bible lacks sense. It's because we lack understanding. And the Bible was written by an omniscient God. He has given it to finite minds like you and me. And so we should not expect that we can absorb everything that an infinite God can provide to us, certainly not in the first sitting. If you submit to the Word of God, you allow the Spirit to instruct you in it, the Lord's going to make things clear in time. I assure you of that. I have studied through the Bible in different times, different ways, many different times in my experience, and there are new things every time I open it, and I correct things I thought I knew before. That's the nature of what God is at work doing. He delights to reveal himself to those who sit at his feet. One of my favorite quotes from the New Testament is, is in Luke 10 where Jesus, talking to the Father in his own prayer to the Father, says this. He says in Luke 10, 21, he says, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and you have revealed them to infants. Do you know who he was talking about? You. Me. We're the infants in that analogy, right? We're not the wise ones. And the Father, and he goes on to say, Yes, Father, for this was well-pleasing in your sight. So, how do we understand the genealogy I just read? Presented here in Matthew. What's its reason to exist? Well, both Matthew and Luke, as I mentioned earlier, record genealogies of Jesus. And interestingly, Matthew and Luke are also the only two Gospels that record any details of Jesus' birth story. And it kind of makes sense, right? The two authors that have an interest in the birth of Jesus are also the two authors who want us to understand his genealogy. So the two are connected. But you know what? It turns out that that connection also explains why the two genealogies are different. I want you to remember Matthew's connection to Jesus. Matthew is one of the twelve disciples of Jesus that were elevated at a certain point to apostle. He's one of the original 12 apostles. So like the other apostles that Jesus uh, appointed, he was introduced to Jesus near the beginning of Jesus' ministry, right after the baptism of John. That's when these guys first got to know Jesus and began to follow him for about three years. Before that, Jesus spent roughly 30 years on earth living, working in obscurity. He lived in this backwater area of Judea that today we know as the Galilee, and at that time, this was the place you went to disappear. This is where you went to be invisible. So even if Jesus and Matthew had crossed paths at some point in those earlier 30 years, you know, just by chance, Matthew wouldn't have given Jesus a second look. He wouldn't have known who he was, wouldn't have cared. So neither Matthew, and for that matter, not Luke either, neither of those guys had first-hand knowledge of Jesus' birth, much less his family genealogy. They would never have known him that time in his life. So, again, how did they get all that information about his birth? Well, if you compare those two Gospels, Matthew and Luke, and you look, compare what they say in their two accounts, it becomes clear that they were written from two different perspectives. For example, in Matthew's Gospel, what we're going to find as we study the birth story here are, are a bunch of intimate details on Joseph's experience. But if you go over and you look at Luke, Luke has all these intimate details on Mary's experience. And secondly, in Matthew's account, you're going to notice that we're given descriptions of what Joseph is thinking. But in Luke's account, you find out what Mary was thinking. And in Matthew's account, you have descriptions of what the angel told Joseph, but you don't hear any mention at all of an angel appearing to Mary. In Luke's account, you have an angel appearing to Mary, no mention of an angel appearing to Joseph. You see the pattern? So evidently, Joseph was Matthew's source 
for the backstory on Jesus' birth, while Mary was Luke's source on the backstory of the birth. And so naturally, each author's account reflects the perspective of that source, which is what you would normally expect, right? And for that same reason, the genealogy in Matthew is the genealogy of Joseph's family, and the genealogy in Luke is the genealogy of Mary's family. Mary was likely still alive when Luke wrote his gospel. He could have interviewed her, presumably. While Matthew probably got Joseph's account secondhand because most assume that Joseph was not alive at the point when Jesus began his ministry. There's just no mention of it. And that seems odd, so it leads people to assume he was dead. Perhaps he was, perhaps he wasn't. But in any case, you could have assumed Matthew could have gone to his family. For that matter, he could have gone to Jesus' half-brothers. Because if you remember, Mary and Joseph had other sons. So, he could have interviewed them. Anyway, knowing this, we now look at Matthew's genealogy, understanding that he's telling a story from Joseph's perspective. Not the father of Jesus, of course, but the husband of Mary. Let's look at the genealogy itself. And, you know, we could spend all night looking at every name. That would just be terrible. I'm not going to do that. That's not how you study a genealogy. Not unless you're very interested in the history of each of those names. And that's not our purpose. A genealogy, though, is it's like a family tree, right? We all know what these are. It just lists generations in a family over time. Many people today are really interested in this kind of stuff. There's, there's websites now you can sign up for to learn your ancestry and go, you know, tearing back through history to find out who your family is. Let me suggest to you that's not always a good idea. Um, you, you know, we're all drawn at first to the mystery of that, of wondering, well, what famous, wonderful people are in my background? Well, it's not always that way, right? As someone once said, it's not the size of your family tree that matters, it's how many nuts you find along the way. And, but let's take a different perspective on genealogies for a minute. For a Jew, remember, Matthew's a Jew, Jesus is a Jew, he's writing to Jews. For a Jew, keeping genealogy records wasn't just a hobby, it's a crucial part of being Jewish, Because God assigned the Jewish nation a special place among all the nations of the world. And he made covenants with that people. And he gave promises to that people. And now those covenants and promises are inherited, as it were, down these lines of the family. And the most important promise that God gave to Israel was to bring a Messiah, a Savior, not just for them, but for the whole world, and to do it through their people, through their line. So it was all important for the Jewish people to maintain this understanding of who was truly Jewish. And genealogical records were kept for that very purpose. I'll give you a simple example from their history. When the Jews were preparing to come back from Babylon and re-establish themselves in the land of Judah, in the land of, of Israel, after God had kicked them out for a time, for 70 years, there comes that point where they're ready to come back. But they've been living and and intermingling to some extent with those in Babylon. And so there comes a point where they have to prove they're Jewish before they're allowed to come back. And I'll just read a couple verses from Ezra. That's the book that covers the return. And in Ezra 2.59 you hear this. Ezra says, Now these are those who came up from Tel Malaya and Tel Harsha, Cherub, Adan, and Emer. But they were not able to give evidence of their father's household and their descendants of whether they were of Israel. They searched among their ancestral registration, but they could not be located. Therefore, they were considered unclean and excluded from the priesthood. They're pretty hardcore about this stuff, right? It's not just fun anymore, is it? If you claim to be a Jew, much less a priest or an heir to the throne of David, you didn't just say you were, you had to prove it. And you proved it through a genealogical record. And so the Jews kept scrupulous records of genealogy of every tribe, and they stored these records and preserved them in the temple in Jerusalem like a library of Congress. 
And it was open to the public for the Jew to go in there and look at your genealogical records, look at someone else's records. So what Matthew does is he opens his gospel, his story of Jesus, is to tell you his genealogy on Joseph's side, and he does it to prove something. To prove Jesus' claims. Now, you and I might look at this and wonder, well, is it true? How do we know he got the right genealogy? Well, remember when he wrote this. He wrote this before the temple was destroyed. So, there's no reason to doubt his genealogy because in his day it would have been so easy for anyone to validate whether he got this right. Anyone could have just walked into the, any Jew, could have walked into the archives and looked up Jesus's or Joseph's uh, genealogy and if there had been anything wrong with this, it would have been shown to be such very easily. And yet we have no historical evidence of anyone ever disputing the genealogy in Matthew. So, if someone wanted to tear this down, they could have easily done it. But they couldn't do it because it was correct. So this is a correct genealogy of Joseph. So as you look at the names in the list, the question we have to answer with the time we have tonight is, what was Matthew trying to prove here about Jesus through this genealogy? We find our answer by starting with a few observations of the names in the list. First, you see in verse 2 the list begins with Abraham. Matthew uses the man's covenant name, Abraham. That's not his given name. His given name was Abram. Remember that? Back in verse 1, Matthew introduces the genealogy by calling it the record of Jesus, the son of Abraham. Now, God made a covenant with Abram originally, and he promised this man he was going to bring a nation of people from his seed, that is, from his family line, and that through this line, God said, he would bring a certain seed, a certain person, to bless all nations, both Jewish and Gentile. And of course, we know that that was a promise of Jesus. And in marking that covenant, God changed the man's name from Abram to Abraham. He inserted a part of his own name, God's own name, in the middle of Abraham's name. Yahweh is the name of God. He put the ha in the middle of Abram's name. Abraham. And that's a way of saying we're united in this covenant. So, by beginning the genealogy with Abraham and calling Jesus the son of Abraham, Matthew's making a pretty clear statement to the Jew. He's testifying, this guy, Jesus, he's the fulfillment of what God spoke to Abraham and said would be coming one day. He's that seed. He's that son. But you notice in verse 1, he also says that Jesus is the son of David. Did you catch that? Now, why mention David's name at all? And even more interestingly, why put David's name in front of Abraham? That doesn't seem very Jewish. If you know anything about Jewish custom, they always think of the father as having greater authority than the son. And that goes back as many generations as you want. So Abraham had greater authority than anyone who came from Abraham, to include David. But here, it's reversed. Now, once again, David's notable because of a covenant. God made a covenant with David as well. And he promised David something very specific. He said that there would always be a dynasty over Israel, a king, and that dynasty would always have a descendant of David occupying the throne. And the Lord promised him that one day he would raise up a ruler in his family line who would rule perpetually. No one would ever take the throne away from this guy. And he wouldn't just rule Israel, he'd rule the world. And therefore, Matthew inserts David's name before Abraham's name because he wants us to understand that this Jesus doesn't just fulfill one, he fulfills the other. He is the son of David, meaning he is the promised king coming in fulfillment of that covenant, the Davidic covenant. And he is the son of Abraham because he is the promised seed to bless all nations, not just Israel, but also the Gentiles. And he puts them in this order for a couple of reasons. One I'll give you now, one I'll give you later. The first answer is because the Davidic covenant is uniquely Jewish. 
It is for the Jewish people, whereas the Abrahamic covenant is for all peoples. So he puts the Jewish segment first, and then the one that covers Gentiles secondly. We have the one reason to show that he is the fulfillment of Abraham's covenant. Second reason is to show you that he's the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. Third reason, Matthew tells us in verse 17, notice, he says, I've arranged this genealogy into three groups of 14 names. Now, I'll do some homework for you. If you compare this genealogy to genealogies in the Old Testament that cover these same families in these same periods of time, you know what you're going to find? You're going to find that Matthew intentionally left some names out. There are grandfathers and great-grandfathers skipped in this list at various points along the way. And then Matthew adds four names you wouldn't expect to find in this genealogy. So there are five kings missing in Joseph's family line. And then you have four women that have been added. And I say that's unusual because typically in Jewish... This is painful, 
I don't like it. I feel betrayed, but I'm at peace. Takes maturity to kiss things that don't feel good. This is what the prophet Samuel had to do. He spent years mentoring a young man named Saul. He took him under his wing and he trained him to become the next king of Israel. You can imagine how proud Samuel was when he saw this young man now grown and leading the Israelites. Everyone looked up to King Saul. He was tall and handsome. He looked like a king. But over time, Saul got off course. He made poor decisions. He eventually lost the throne. Samuel was so disappointed. He thought, God, I put all this time and energy into him. I've invested my life, and it seems like it was all a big waste. You would think God would say, I understand, Samuel. Too bad. It didn't work out. But God didn't let him feel sorry for himself. He said, Samuel, how long are you going to mourn over Saul? God is asking us, how long are you going to mourn over what you've lost? How long are you going to be discouraged over who hurt you and what you didn't get and the boss that wasn't fair? I don't believe in giving people the right to feel sorry for themselves. Not because they don't have a good reason. Some people have gone through things that nobody should have to go through. But I've learned if you stay in self-pity with a chip on your shoulder, thinking you have a reason to live defeated, you will never see the vindication, the restoration, the promotion, the favor that belongs to you. God wants to pay you back for what was unfair. Don't sit around in self-pity. Kiss the bad break goodbye. Kiss the unfair childhood goodbye. Kiss that injustice goodbye. God told Samuel, fill your horn with oil. I am sending you to the house of Jesse. I have chosen one of his sons as the next king. God was saying, Samuel, if you'll kiss this disappointment goodbye and start moving forward, I'll show you the new king. One of your dreams may have died. That didn't stop God's plan. He has another dream. One relationship may not have worked out. If you'll kiss goodbye the old, God will show you the new. David went on to become the greatest king that ever lived. When God makes up for what you lost, it's not going to be less than, it's not going to be equal, it's going to be better. Just because it hasn't turned out the way you thought doesn't mean you have to settle for second best. God has to come up with a plan B. God already knew what would happen. He knew every door that would close. He knew every person that would walk away. He knew how you'd spend time and energy, but a dream not come to pass. All that is getting you prepared for where God has taken you. Now, don't get stuck mourning over Saul, disappointed over a bad break, bitter because of a loss. Kiss it goodbye, move forward, and you will see your Davids. You will see more than you can ask or think. When we were trying to buy property to build a new sanctuary, twice the land we found was sold out from under us. We had an appointment at 8 o'clock in the morning to close on the first property. We showed up at 7.45. The secretary walked out and said, I'm sorry, the owner sold the property last night. I couldn't believe that he didn't keep his word. I went home so disappointed. I told Victoria what happened and how we didn't have the property and how we'd never be able to build, how we were stuck, how we couldn't keep growing. I had a sad song. I thought I was convincing. Thank you, sir.
She looked at me and said, Joel, God is still on the throne. This is not a surprise to him. We are going to stay in faith and believe something better is coming. I didn't want to hear that. I wanted to feel sorry for myself. The flesh likes to have a pity party. She was telling me what I'm telling you. Kiss it goodbye. Move forward. When things happen like that that you don't understand, you can be sure God is up to something. He is working behind the scenes. I came back to a place of peace. I knew if God wanted us to have that property, no person could have stopped us. And just the opposite. If God doesn't want us to have something, all of our effort won't make it happen. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He knows how to not only open doors that no man can shut, He knows how to close doors that no man can open. Are you upset over a door God closed? People He moved out of your life? A dream He didn't let come to pass yet? Six months later, we received word that the compact center was coming available. Right then, I knew why those doors closed. Buying property would have been second best. That would have been keeping Saul. The compact center is David, more than we can imagine. I'm asking you to be at peace with your past. Peace with things you don't understand. Not bitter, not angry, not with a chip on your shoulder. Maybe you didn't have a good childhood. Nobody was there to speak faith into you. God knew how you would be raised. That's not going to keep you from your destiny. It's leading you to your destiny. Kiss it goodbye and move forward. You can't become who you were created to be with a chip on your shoulder, thinking that you're at a disadvantage. If you'll take the hand you've been dealt and make the most of it, God will open doors you couldn't open. His favor on your life will take you where you couldn't go on your own. Why don't you kiss the self-pity goodbye? Kiss that condescending spirit goodbye. Kiss always having to be right goodbye. Don't bring a bad attitude into a new year. Being sarcastic. Some people can wear designer clothes, put on makeup, have nice hair. They look great on the outside. The problem is... None of that can cover up what's on the inside. If we would work half as much on the inside as we do the outside, we'd be much better off. But if you don't kiss a bad attitude goodbye, the problem is you'll be at the same place next year as you are right now. And sometimes we're... Compassion, c'est l'enfer. Notez ça, mettez ça sur internet, partagez. L'église de la compassion, dirigée par un psychotique, c'est l'enfer des psychotiques. Nous, au moins, nous sommes dans la salle d'attente, donc nous pouvons partir. Quelqu'un peut dire, ah, je me convertis et je quitte, je quitte cet enfer. Quelqu'un peut dire, beating myself up, I am forgiven, I am redeemed, I'm wearing a robe of righteousness. Well, you've always been in dysfunction, that's how you were raised, you've always been hot-tempered, you've always been angry. Yes, that's how I was raised, but that's not who I am. I'm kissing that goodbye. I'm putting an end to what's been passed down. I'm breaking the generational curse, and I'm starting the generational blessing. 
You need to announce to that dysfunction, you may have been in my 2018, but I have bad news, you are not in my 2019. Mediocrity, depression, bitterness, anger, I'm kissing you goodbye. I won't be seeing you this year. We are parting ways. Hate to say it, not gonna miss you. See you, not gonna be you. Kiss loneliness goodbye. Father, thank you that you have somebody awesome already headed my way. Thank you that the right person is chasing me down. Goodbye lack, struggle, not having enough. You were in my yesterday, but sorry, you're not in my today. Father, thank you that I will lend and not borrow. Thank you that whatever I touch will prosper and succeed. Maybe you need to kiss goodbye to the way you see yourself. Inferior, unattractive, not a good personality, not talented enough. Kiss that wrong self-image goodbye. Victory starts in your thinking. Abundance, health, freedom, it starts in our mind. You can't think the same way and expect different results. Start embracing who God says you are. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. You are a masterpiece. You have been crowned with favor. You have royal blood flowing through your veins. Nobody in this world has your same fingerprints. You didn't come off an assembly line. You are an original, one of a kind, made in the image of Almighty God. I wonder where you could be at this time next year if you'd start kissing things goodbye. Kiss the offense goodbye. Quit letting people hurt your feelings. Quit letting what they say ruin your day. Tune it out. They have a right to say what they want. You have a right to ignore it. You shouldn't let that get down in your spirit. Well, Joe, I'm praying that these people at work will quit talking about me. I don't want to discourage you, but they may never quit talking about you. They are jealous of the favor and blessing on your life. Take it as a compliment. They don't talk about average people. They talk about exceptional people. They don't talk about people that aren't doing anything. They talk about people that are taking new ground, people that are making a difference, people that stand out. It's a test. God is seeing if you're ready to go to the next level. Are you going to get upset, start thinking about how you're going to pay them back, or are you going to kiss it goodbye and keep running your race, enjoying your life? Those adversaries are getting you prepared for your destiny. Where you're going, there will be opposition, critics, people trying to pull you down. The good news is no weapon formed against you will prosper. They cannot stop you. The forces that are for you are greater than the forces that are against you. Stay on the high road and stay focused on what God has put in your heart. You don't have time to get distracted by all the negative chatter. What people think about you is none of your business. What they're saying shouldn't concern you. There'll always be somebody that doesn't like you. Kiss it goodbye and keep moving forward. Now, there may be some relationships you need to kiss goodbye. I'm not talking about your husband or your wife. Somebody just thought they got their word for 2019. Your time is too valuable to spend it with peace stealers, people that try to get you all riled up, or with dream killers, people that tell you what you can't become, or with compromisers, people that cause you to give in to temptation. 
Joel, I've had this friend a long time. I don't hang out with them. They may get upset. What you're unwilling to walk away from is where you'll get stuck. If you don't kiss the wrong people goodbye, you'll never meet the right people. If someone is not adding value to your life, making you better, pushing you toward your destiny, you need to make a change. And sometimes it's just a new season. The friends you had five years ago may not be the friends you need now. Everybody can't go where you're going. It doesn't mean they're not good people. You've just outgrown them. You're going at a faster pace. If you continue hanging around them, it will limit your growth. You need to gradually spend less and less time with them. Naomi's daughter-in-law, Orpah, she was a good person. Naomi loved her. They had spent years together. But Naomi recognized Orpah's part in her story was over. She didn't try to talk her into staying. If someone is supposed to be in your life, you can't make them leave. And if someone leaves easily, they're not supposed to be there. Quit trying to talk people into staying. You don't have to convince anyone to love you, to call you, to come see you. You are a gift. You are a prize. You have something amazing to offer. If they don't want to be there, that's a sure sign they're not supposed to be there. God has people already ordained that you can't make leave. People that want to celebrate you. People that love spending time with you. If somebody wants to leave, let them leave. Your destiny is not tied to the people that walked away. Be respectful, but kiss the orphans goodbye. God told Abraham to leave his relatives and move to a different city. I'm sure he loved his relatives. For a season, everything was fine. But when God was about to promote Abraham and do something big in his life, he knew his relatives and the people where he lived wouldn't be able to handle it. The people closest to you may not see the greatness in you. When they're familiar, they can dismiss you as just being ordinary. Sometimes you have to kiss people goodbye so you can become all you were created to be. This is what my father had to do. At 17, he knew he had more in him, but his parents told him to just stay on the farm and pick cotton with them the rest of his life. They loved my father. They were trying to protect him, but they couldn't see his seeds of greatness. They didn't see a man that would touch nations. They just saw their son. Nothing special. He's just one of us. My father very respectfully kissed them goodbye and went out and started ministering. God opened amazing doors. He went on to leave his mind. Don't let people talk you out of what God put in your heart. When you come to the end of life, you're not going to have to stand before people and give an account. You're going to stand before God. I would rather disappoint people than disappoint God. I would rather hurt a few feelings than to miss my destiny. Is there something you need to kiss goodbye? A hurt? A bad attitude? An area that you're compromising in? Don't bring it into a new year. That's in your past. doesn't belong in your future. The Apostle Paul said, Forgetting what lies behind, I press to the high calling. If there's a high calling, that means there's a low calling. You can go through life holding on to hurts, strong attitudes, with people that are not good for you, but that will keep you from new levels, from the high calling that belongs to you. 
It's time to start kissing things goodbye. Kiss that failure goodbye. This is a new day. Kiss guilt goodbye. You've been forgiven. Kiss the bad break goodbye. God has something better. If you'll do this, I believe and declare you're about to come into the high calling. New doors are going to open. New relationships, favor, healing, breakthroughs, the fullness of your destiny in Jesus' name. And if you receive it, can you say amen today? I'd like to give you an opportunity to make Jesus the Lord of your life. Would you pray with me? Just say, Lord Jesus, I repent of my sins. Come into my heart. I make you my Lord and Savior. Friends, if you prayed that simple prayer, we believe you got born again. Get in a good Bible-based church and keep God first place. Thanks for watching this message. I hope you enjoyed it. We upload new videos every week to keep you inspired and encouraged. So don't forget to hit the like button and make sure you subscribe to our channel. Let us know in the comments below how this message has encouraged you. We would love to hear from you. We're praying for you and your family. We'll see you next time. God sees your obedience. He sees you believing when you could be discouraged. He hears you praising when you could be complaining. He sees you stretching when you could be shrinking back. I believe for many of you, you're about to walk into your healing, walk into your freedom, walk into a great spouse, walk into abundance. As you keep walking, you're going to see God show out in your life. bless you. It's great to have you with us today. I hope you'll stay connected with us all through the week. You can download our daily podcast, listen to the messages anytime, or you can go to our YouTube channel, follow us on Instagram, Facebook. So thanks for tuning in. I like to start with something funny. I heard about this pastor. He found a dead mule on the church grounds. He called the health department. They said they couldn't pick it up without authorization from the mayor. Well, the mayor was known to be rude and hard to get along with. When the pastor called, the mayor didn't disappoint. He started ranting and raving. Finally said, why did you even call me? Isn't it your job to bury the dead? The pastor asked God for the right response. He said, yes, mayor, it's my job to bury the dead.
that I always like to notify the next of kin first. Say it like you mean it. This is my Bible. I am what it says I am. I have what it says I have. I can do what it says I can do. Today, I will be taught the Word of God. I boldly confess, my mind is alert, my heart is receptive, I will never be the same. In Jesus' name, God bless you. I want to talk to you today about keep on walking. We all have things that we're believing for, dreams to come to pass, problems to turn around. We have the promise in our heart, but nothing is happening. We pray, we believe, but we don't see any signs of things improving. It's easy to get discouraged and think it's never going to work out. But most of the time, God doesn't do things instantly. There will be a waiting period. Thoughts will tell you it's too late. If it was going to happen, it would have happened by now. But just because you don't see anything doesn't mean that God is not working. As you keep believing, keep praising, keep doing the right thing, you're going to see things begin to change. Many times, the miracle is in the process. It happens when you keep being obedient. Don't be frustrated because you're not seeing immediate results. What you're believing for is still on the way. In Luke 17, there were ten lepers sitting by the side of the road. As Jesus came passing through on his way to Jerusalem, they began to shout, Jesus, have mercy on us and heal us. Jesus could have gone over and healed them right there. He could have spoken to them and caused that leprosy to suddenly disappear. But he did something interesting. He said, go show yourselves to the priests. Well, leprosy was contagious. They were forbidden to be around people. They had to live in colonies, isolated from society. Jesus asked them to do something that didn't make sense, something out of the ordinary. They could have thought, once I'm healed, once I see my skin clear up, then I'll go see the priest. But faith says you have to believe it before you see it. You have to act like it's on the way when you don't see any sign of it. These lepers started walking toward the priest. It could have been several miles, maybe taking them most of the day. I can hear people saying, why are you going to the priest? You're not well. You look just the same. The first couple of hours, they looked at their skin, didn't see anything different. Thoughts said, you might as well turn around, go back home. You're just wasting your time. But these lepers just kept on walking. No sign of things improving, no changes in their skin, but hour after hour, they kept walking. I can imagine at one point, one of them looked at their skin and thought, it looks like it's getting better. Another began to move his hand. My fingers are starting to function. Another, my skin is starting to clear up. The scripture says, as they went, they were healed. If they would have stayed where they were, waited for things to change, they would have never seen the miracle. The healing was in the obedience, in the going. By the time they got to the priest, they were all perfectly well. God has put promises in your heart. He's told you that he's restoring health back into you, that you're going to lend and not borrow, that as for you and your house, you will serve the Lord. But maybe like these lepers, nothing looks any different. The medical report hasn't changed. Your child's still off course. Business hasn't improved. You could get discouraged, think it's never going to happen. No, just keep walking. Keep being obedient. Keep praising. Keep thanking. That's when the miracle is going to take place. 
You can't go by what you see or by what you don't see. Go by what God promised you. Joel, I still have these symptoms. Keep on walking. My business is still slow. Keep on walking. These people at work are still not treating me right. Keep on walking. God sees your obedience. He sees you believing when you could be discouraged. He hears you praising when you could be complaining. He sees you stretching when you could be shrinking back. I believe for many of you, you're about to walk into your healing, walk into your freedom, walk into a great spouse, walk into abundance. As you keep walking, you're going to see God show out in your life. Many of the miracles Jesus performed required an act of obedience. His first miracle, turning water into wine. He told the staff at the wedding to go fill up these large pots with water. They had to do something that didn't make sense. They could have said, Jesus, we need wine, not water. What good is this going to do? The obedience is what brought the miracle. Without them filling the water pots, there would be no wine. Is God asking you to do something that doesn't make sense? To step out in faith when you don't have the experience? To forgive that person that did you wrong? To pray for others that need healing when you're still not feeling well? Is he asking you to bring him five loaves and two fish when you need to feed thousands? It's not so much what you're doing, it's the obedience. When you prove to God that you're going to do the right thing even when it's hard, even when it doesn't make sense, then you're going to see God do awesome things in your life. In the Old Testament, there was a widow. Her husband had died and left her in great debt. She finally ran out of funds. Now the creditors were coming to take her two sons as payment. The prophet Elisha showed up and asked her what she had in her house. She said, I don't have anything except a small jar of oil. He told her to go out and borrow as many empty containers as she could find. That didn't make sense. What good was it going to do to borrow empty containers? She could have said, Elisha, I need full containers. I need provision. I need funds. What God asks us to do doesn't always make sense. His ways are not our ways. Many times, it's simply a test. If you'll obey, the miracle will follow. Don't talk yourself out of what you know God is telling you to do. Sometimes it seems ordinary. You're asking God to promote you. He's saying, get to work on time. Produce more than you have to. You're asking God for healing. He's saying, eat healthier. Exercise. Get more sleep. You're believing for your child to get on course. God is saying, help that neighbor's child. Invest into that young man. It doesn't have to make sense. That's what faith is all about. This widow went out and borrowed all these empty containers. I can see her knocking on door after door. The neighbor's thinking, what does she need my container for? She doesn't have any food, no reason for it. But faith makes room for provision. You can't wait till it happens. You have to make room for it when you don't see any sign of it. You have to talk like it's on the way. Plan like it's on the way. Think like it's on the way. After working all day, she came back to her house. Now she had a couple dozen empty containers. Elisha told her to pour the little oil that she had into one of the empty containers. She could have said, Elisha, that doesn't make sense. 
what good is that going to do to just transfer the oil from one container to the other? But instead of talking herself out of it, she poured that little bit of oil and kept pouring and pouring and pouring. She couldn't believe it. She filled up the first empty container, then another and another. The oil never ran out until all the containers were full. She sold the oil, not only had enough to pay the creditors, but she had plenty left over to live off of. But none of this would have happened if she had not been willing to do something that didn't make sense. Are you missing your miracle because you're reasoning everything out? You're looking at it all in the natural? God is supernatural. He'll ask you to do things that you may not understand. After Moses died, God raised up Joshua to lead the Israelites. The earlier generation never made it into the promised land. Because they complained and doubted, they wandered in the desert for 40 years. Now the children of that generation had grown up. Joshua was their new leader. They were headed to the promised land, but they had to cross the Jordan River. There were no bridges in that day. The problem was, it was the rainy season, and the Jordan was in flood stage. It was over 150 feet wide, with violent currents rushing down from the melting snow. Joshua was familiar with this type of scene. As a young man, he was there when Moses held up his staff and the Red Sea parted. He had seen God make a way. When these two million people came to the Jordan River and saw how swollen it was and how strong the currents were, they didn't want to have anything to do with it. I can imagine Joshua did like his mentor Moses. He held up his rod and said, Lord, please let these waters part. Everyone was watching with great anticipation, but nothing happened. Joshua thought, God, this is my first test to show these people that you're really with me. Don't leave me hanging here. God promised Joshua, as I was with Moses, I will be with you. He didn't say, I'm going to do for you everything I did for Moses. God does things different ways. You have a unique anointing. There's a distinct calling on your life. You don't have to copy someone else, try to be what they are, prove your worth, prove that you measure up. Walk in your own anointing. Walk in your own calling. The Jordan River didn't part. Joshua had to make a decision. Are we going to turn around and go back, wander more in the desert, or are we going to keep walking? Joshua's attitude was, we've come too far to stop now. God, you wouldn't have promised us this land if you weren't going to give us the victory. Instead of turning back, Joshua put the priest out in front. He told all the people, let's keep walking. I can hear them say, excuse me, Joshua, do you not see there's a violent, raging river a few hundred feet in front of us? There's nowhere to go? Joshua acted like he didn't hear them. His instructions were keep on walking. There will always be people that try to convince you to turn back. Your dream is too big. The opposition too strong. Nothing's working out. Just accept it. You have to do like Joshua and have a made-up mind. I'm going to keep walking. I'm going to become all I was created to be. The priest got right up to the water. It was do or die, now or never, but the water still didn't part. They looked back at Joshua one last time, thinking surely he's going to retreat now. 
Surely he'll come to his senses. Joshua answered with three simple words. Keep on walking. The scripture says, when the priests got in the water, when their feet got wet, suddenly the waters begin to push back. All two million people went through on dry ground. Miracles happen when there's obedience. God doesn't give us all the details. He doesn't show you how it's going to work out. may not happen like you've seen happen with your family. There may not be any sign of 